Good morning. There we are. I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today for our Congregation at Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. Uh, it's Saturday, September 11th, 2021, of course, the 20th anniversary of the uh, attacks upon uh, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon uh, attempt on the White House. Of course, that plane crashed. We, or at least attempt, we believe, attack on the White House uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. Remember all those um, who died, both um, through the tragedy, but also uh, in service to those who were affected and later died from uh, inhalation of smoke and other particles, etc. Um, a day of remembrance, I think we need to remember um, not just that it happened, um, but why it happened. All right, we're going to do a little bit of that consideration today. Uh, of course, there's many other commemorations that are happening around the world, um, uh, certainly around our country, uh, specials on television, etc. You can hear from, uh, for example, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, who was there, and uh, Bernie Carrick, who was the police commissioner. Um, they've done many interviews, great ways to find out uh, what it was like on the ground in trying to serve and protect uh, those citizens there. Um, but what a tragedy. And I'm sure uh, those of us who are alive, uh, I was on my way to work when I heard it on the news and then spent most of the day at work, um, not really working. We didn't have very many customers that day. I'm just paying attention to what we were seeing on the screens, watched in real time the attacks on the tower. So there you go. Um, I have some other thoughts about that, but I think I'll hold that until after um, we complete our devotion today. Okay. Let's begin. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Say the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, let's say our memory verse for this week one more time. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111, verse 10. Our psalm this week is Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right, our Old Testament reading for tomorrow is from 1 Kings chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. 
and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor was the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. This Sunday is one of my uh, favorite Sundays, I think because it seems perennially appropriate, put it that way. Um, the Lord says, do not be anxious about today. Tomorrow has enough worries for it. Or don't, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for today has enough troubles um, on its own. And there is a sense that we think that we can control <laughs> the future, all right? Um, or that the future is determined by the past, which is another way of kind of imposing control on what happens. Uh, we don't know what the Lord has in store for us tomorrow. He actually tells us not to worry about it. Well, why do we worry about it? Because we want to be in control. <laughs> um, and it's simply saying God is in control, though, is then sometimes used as an excuse or a manifestation of a, of, uh, a different kind of control, actually, is to say, I'm going to neglect uh, the vocations that God has given me, the means by which he has offered to me to provide, right? So here, uh, Elijah comes to the widow and, and pleads for her uh, to provide for him. Now, part of what's behind this story, of course, is the Levitical uh, command, actually, to show hospitality to strangers. And behind that command, of course, is, is the promise from creation that God provides for the birds and the lilies and provides for you, right? He will, um, as Elijah reminds her, he will provide. He will continue to cause the, the flour and the oil to not run out. This is, of course, uh, in the background of the story of, the, say, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, right? Now, um, I looked to see how Luther used it. And one, one thing that I, I discovered that I had never uh, actually note, noted before is that in Luther's preface to um, the book of Jonah, so he translated the book of Jonah, or he does a commentary on the book of Jonah. In his preface to that commentary, he writes this, some people concur with, in Jerome's opinion, Jerome being the translator of uh, the scriptures into Latin, back in what? Jerome was 4th century, 3rd century, somewhere in there, or 6th century, I don't know, early, um, that the prophet Jonah was the son of the widow of Zarephath at Sidon, who fed the prophet Elijah in the time of famine, according to 1 Kings 17 and Luke 4.26. These people base their assumption on the fact that Jonah here, in chapter 1, calls himself son of Amittai, that is, the son of the truthful one. This they relate to the widow's words to Elijah after he had raised her son from the dead, which is our reading next week. Now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. However, moreover, or no, whoever wants to, wants to may believe this. But then Luther notes, I do not. <laughs> no, his father's name was Amittai in Latin. That would be Verox in German, Varlich. And he came from Gath Hefer, a town within the borders of the tribe of Zebulun, according to Joshua 19.13. For in 2 Kings 14, we find recorded, King Jeroboam restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the prophet. All right, so apparently there's an um, ancient, back to Jerome at least, opinion that um, Jonah the prophet is the same son that we meet in our text today. Um, but we don't hold to that. All right. Um, as far as its use, the use of this text, um, Luther has a work here, um, and this is uh, actually one of really one of the most excellent uh, writings from Luther. Right? This is his commentary on the Magnificat, Mary's song, uh, where he goes through point by point. Um, each of the the works of uh, that the Lord has done for her for Mary, all right, and it's really a magnificent um, commentary on on the Magnificat. It's really a beautiful song, of course. Uh, Luther's commentary, I think, is it a whole volume or it's half of a volume, maybe, uh, of one of his books. So, in regards to the fifth and sixth works, as he calls them, or rather Mary's words, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. This is what Luther writes. We said above that by those of low a degree are meant not those who are despised and nothing in appearance, but those who are willing to be in such a state. 
especially if they have been forced into it for the sake of God's word or, or the right. Even so, by the hungry are not meant those who have little or nothing to eat, but those who gladly suffer want, especially if they are forcibly compelled by others to do so for the sake of God or the truth. Right? Fasting because of, say, imprisonment is what he has in mind there. Who is lowlier, more despised, and needier than the devil and the damned, or than, or than men who are tortured, starved, and slain on account of their evil deeds, or all who are lowly and in want against their will? Yet that does not help them, but only adds to their misery. Of them the mother of God does not speak, but of those who are one with God and God with them, and who believe and trust in him. On the other hand, what hindrance was their riches to the Holy Fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were actually quite wealthy guys. <laughs> what hindrance was the royal throne to David, or his authority in Babylon to Daniel? Or their high station or great riches to those who had them, or who have them today? provided they do not set their hearts on them and seek their own advantage in them. Solomon says in Proverbs 16.2, The Lord weighs the spirit. That is, he judges not according to the outward appearance, whether one is rich or poor, high or low, but according to the spirit, and how it behaves itself within. There must needs be such differences and distinctions of persons and stations in our life here on earth. Yet the heart should not neither cling to them nor fly from them, neither cling to the high and rich, nor fly from the poor and lowly. Thus it is also said in Psalm 9, 7, verse 9 and 11, God tries the hearts of minds, therefore he is a righteous judge. But men judge according to outward appearance, therefore they err. All right. So one note on that, of course, Luther has in mind here is the way that we judge one another, um, judge actually God's favor towards one another based upon material or physical well-being, right? Uh, which is not true, actually. God's favor is shown upon us in the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, right? And God gives to some to be rich, some to be poor. It does seem somewhat arbitrary, I suppose, um, but it's not actually ours to judge. What he does give us to do is to be generous with those who are poor, um, those of us who have more, and to provide for those who are in need, right? And then in that way, God then, um, through our vocations of neighborly love and protection, actually allows us to demonstrate the love that he has for us, right? That we've received by him in the forgiveness of sins, right? Talked about that in the sermon, actually, um, for Janus on Thursday. Continuing with Luther, these works are done in secret, like those mentioned above, these works of judging, right? So that no one is aware of them until they have come to an end. A rich man is not aware how really empty and wretched he is until he comes to die or suffer other, or otherwise suffers loss. Then only does he see how all his goods were altogether nothing, as it is said in Psalm 76, verse 5. They sank into the sleep, that is, they died. All the rich men discovered that they had nothing in their hands. On the other hand, the hungry and the thirsty know not how filled with good things they are until they come to an end. Then they find the words of Christ to be true in Luke 6, 21. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they shall be filled. And the comforting promise of the mother of God here. He has filled the hungry with good things. It is utterly impossible for God to let anyone who trusts in him die of starvation. All angels would have to, have to come and feed him. Elijah was fed by ravens and lived for many days on a handful of meal, he and the widow of Zarephath, as we just heard. God cannot forsake those who trust in him. Hence David says in Psalm 37 verse 25, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging bread. Now he is righteous that trusts in God. Again, in Psalm 70, 34 verse 10, the rich suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And Saint Hannah, the mother of Samuel, says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 5, those who are full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry are filled. All right, and we've talked about before how Hannah's song and Mary's song um, are have strong parallels. But our wretched unbelief always hinders God from working such works in us and ourselves from experiencing and knowing them, right? So in other words, God provides for us, but we often don't see it because of our unbelief. We desire to be filled and have plenty of everything before hunger and want arrive. We lay up provision against future hunger and need so that we no longer have need of God and his works. What sort of faith is that which trusts in God when all the while you feel and know that you have goods laid up for yourself? Here he has a gospel text uh, in mind, right? 
he says to my soul, soul, we have good things, right? And build bigger barns. We talked about that the other day. It is because of our unbelief that we see God's word, the truth, and right, defeated, and wrong, triumph, and yet remain silent, do not rebuke, speak out, or prevent it, but let things go as they will. Why? We are afraid that we too might be attacked and made poor, and might then perish of hunger, and be forever laid low. That is, to esteem temporal goods more than God, and to put them in God's place as an idol. If we do this, we do not deserve to hear or understand the comforting promise of God, that he exalts the lowly, puts down the mighty, fills the poor, empties the rich. We do not deserve ever to come to the knowledge of his works, without which there is no salvation. We must therefore be damned forever, as Psalms 28 verse 5 says, because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hand, he will break them down and build them up no more. Right. And again, it's it's just a, a brilliant work from Luther. Um, I don't remember what volume it is. Let's see if I can find out. Uh, volume 21 of Luther's works. Yeah, the first half of the volume is the Sermon on the Mount. The second half is the Magnificat. Right. Really a great, if you're going to pick up a Luther volume, that would be a good one to do, along with maybe the Galatians commentary. Um, speaking of Galatians, our... Epistle reading for tomorrow is Galatians 5 uh, and 6. If we live by in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For if he sows to his flesh, will... Uh, of his flesh will of of the flesh reap corruption, and or but he who sows of the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. All right. So you see here, um, actually, it ties in really well with not only the Old Testament reading but also the epistle, or excuse me, gospel for tomorrow about, um, you know, consider the birds and the lilies, how they neither sow nor reap, right? Um, here, again, that idea of hospitality is extended now, not just in simply providing shelter or food um, for, in the case of the widow at Zarephath, you know, for the prophet who was in need, um, but actually for the whole household of faith, for one another. Now, the only way that this actually can happen <laughs> is if we know one another's need. Uh, one of the chief frustrations, I would say, as a pastor is that um, the members of the congregation are often very private in, in their need, right? So uh, certainly I don't find out if they have spiritual need um, until often much later on after the case. So uh, maybe they're having issues uh, with their marriage. Maybe they're um, sick. Maybe they um, have doubts and worries. Maybe they're anxious about um, the, the fate of our country, you know, where it's going or uh, maybe any number of spiritual distresses and they don't communicate it. So it's very hard to provide um, and to do good for them, right? To provide God's word and counsel. Um, but I think it's even more than that. You know, what, what Paul has in mind here, of course, is providing for the pastor, right? Share all good things with the one who teaches, but also um, to share with one another, with all as they have need, especially those within the Christian congregation, that is the household of faith. Well, how are you supposed to do that unless they tell you? <laughs> I mean, obviously you can observe and you can see, but if they don't tell you they've lost their job, if they don't tell you that they've, um, uh, maybe they've, they've had to uh, quit or they've been, uh, yeah, that they've been removed from their job because they refused to um, inject an experimental uh, medical you know, technology into their, into their bloodstream, um, that their conscience is burdened by that, and so they refuse to do it. And so they're re removed uh, from their employment. If they don't tell you that, how are you supposed to provide for them in their need, right? Um, to just depend upon these external agencies like uh, the unemployment office, um, especially when it's a fellow Christian, uh, we're here for you, right? So um, 
as we have opportunity, and, and sometimes I think uh, opportunities missed uh, because people um, maybe are suffering under the shame um, of being in need. Uh, I know I've experienced that myself um, and failing to ask the congregation for help when we've been in need as a family, uh, especially with medical needs. Um, but also trying to think other situations. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just any number of opportunities that, that get missed uh, because of shame, right? Um, but, you know, not wanting, you know, to take handouts, I guess. But that's not what they are because we're talking about family, family provide for family. Um, it's probably more than just shame. I think there's a, certainly our work ethic, which is related to shame, but the idea that we should um, provide for ourselves. And I think, you know, there's also that idea that, uh, you know, what will the neighbors think? Well, so what? <laughs> Whatever the neighbors may think, uh, it's kind of irrelevant. Now, again, because today's September 11th, um, I thought it was actually interesting that Luther has a, a really significant work uh, for those who serve in, dis- in vocations of providing protection, uh, whether it be uh, police, uh, fire, but especially soldiers, um, armed forces. And that's a work that's from volume 46 of Luther's work, which is. Uh, whether soldiers too can be saved. And why I thought this was interesting is that Luther brings to bear um, this verse right here, Galatians 6 verse 7, do not be deceived, God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. All right. Excuse me here, let me get back. Um, it's a long work, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, Trying to decide where to jump in here. All right, so the question is whether soldiers too can be saved. All right. Um, Moreover, I do not want anyone to think that what I have written here applies only to peasants, as though they were the only ones of lower rank and nobles were not also subjects. Not at all. What I say about subjects is is intended for peasants, citizens of the cities, nobles, counts, and princes as well. For all of these have overlords and are subjects to someone else. A rebellious noble, count, or prince should have his head cut off the same as a rebellious peasant. (laughs) Capital punishment. The one should be treated like the other, and no one will be treated unjustly. I believe Emperor Maximilian could have sung a pretty little song about rebellious princes and nobles who put their heads together to start a rebellion, and the nobles. How often have they complained and conspired and sought to defy the princes and rebel? What? Conspire? There's conspiracies? What? That never happens. Anyway, uh, think of the furor of the Franconian nobles alone have made about how little they care for the emperor or for their bishops. However, we are not supposed to call these knightlets, <laughs> that's an insult, uh, rebels or troublemakers, although that is exactly what they were. The peasant, on the other hand, is supposed to stand for it and keep quiet. But unless my mind deceives me, God has punished the rebellious lords and nobles through the rebellious peasants, one scoundrel with another. Maximilian had put up with these nobles and could not punish them, though he had to restrain the peasants as long as he lived. The situation in Germany was so critical that I would be willing to wager that if the peasants had not revolted, a rebellion would have broken out among the nobles, against the princes, and perhaps against the emperor. But now the peasants are the ones who have revolted, and they alone have become the villains. The only black ones, right? With a black heart. As a result, the nobles and princes get off easy and can wipe their mouths as though they had done nothing wrong. But God is not deceived, Galatians 6 verse 7. He has used these events to warn the nobles that they too should learn to obey their rulers. Let this be my flattery of princes and lords. But here you say, are we then to put up with a ruler who would be such a scoundrel that he lets land and people go to ruin? To say it as the nobles would, quote, devil, St. Verus's dance, pestilence, St. Anthony, St. Quirinius. I am a nobleman, and I am, am I supposed to allow my wife and children and body and property to be so shamefully ruined? I reply, listen here, I am not trying to teach you anything. Go ahead and do what you please. You are smart enough. You do not need me. I do not have to worry about anything except watching while you sing this proud little song 
to the bitter end. All right, so Luther says, um, what are we supposed to do when there's such a scoundrel that we can sing a little song and laugh? Because and, we have, what are we supposed to do with these men, right? And this, he's talking about the ruling class, which we understand quite well. To the others who would like to keep their conscience clear, we have, to say, we have this to say. God has thrown us into the world under the power of the devil. As a result, we have no paradise here. Rather, at any time, we can expect all kinds of misfortune to body, wife, child, property, and honor. And if there is one hour in which there are less than ten disasters, or an hour in which we can, can even survive, we ought to say, how God, good God is to me. He has not sent every disaster to me in this one hour. How is this, that possible? Indeed, as long as I live under the devil's power, I should, I should not have one happy hour. That is what we teach our people. Of course, you may do something else. You may build yourself a paradise where the devil cannot get in so that you do not uh, expect the rage of any tyrant. We will watch you. Actually, things go well for us, go too well for us. We are too happy and content. We do not know how good God is to us, and we believe that neither God takes care of us nor the devil is so evil. We want nothing but wicked scoundrels. We want to be nothing but wicked scoundrels and yet receive nothing but good from God. That is enough on the first point, which I didn't give to you. That is, that war and uprisings against our superiors cannot be right. However, people do and are in danger of doing this every day, just as they do everything else that is evil and unjust. But when it comes from God and he does not prevent it, the final outcome is not good and the people involved suffer, even though such rebels seem to have good fortune for a while. All right, so he's talking about what is a just war. Uh, when, is it, when is it right to rebel against an authority that God has established? Uh, and in Luther's mind, there isn't a good time. Um, you will suffer um, as a result of rebelling against the authorities that he's established. Right? Um, now, of course, we think in our context, what authority has he established? Actually, the authority is established here is a government by the people and for the people. Right? Um, so actually, the, the highest magistrate in our land is the people. <laughs> and second to that, would be your local government. After that is your state, and the lowest authority in the land is the federal government, uh, according to the Constitution. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, people have uh, allowed the federal government to invert the order of things and to say that you, especially even you as a parent over children, are the lowest authority of the land. You have the least authority. Uh, not according to the Constitution, and I would argue, really, not according to uh, a right understanding of God's word. That if God would establish such authority. From creation, it was first um, parents over children. Only later, um, our civil is the civil estate or the religious estate, you know, church, and then later civil estate. Uh, and these authorities um, are always inferior, actually, um, to the first authority, that is, parents, father, wife, children. All right. Um, so, can soldiers to be saved? Luther actually later on goes goes on later to say, I should say, that uh, of course they can because they are serving the authorities that God has established. All right. Uh, now, I recognize that I'd like to actually share a meditation on the psalm with you, and I neglected to do that, so let's go back to that. Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes. Let's have a little meditation on that. We've been praying it all week. All right. And again, this is from uh, Patrick, excuse me, Father Patrick Henry Reardon. And so uh, he's of the Eastern Church, although he wasn't um, for his entire ministry before he was, uh, I believe, Anglican of some sort, right? Um, so he's going to come from the perspective of, of the Orthodox Church here. In the canonical, canonical text of Holy Scripture used by the Holy Orthodox Church as distinct from the truncated Protestant Bibles read in most English-speaking Orthodox Christians, the book of Daniel commences with a dramatic, fast-moving narrative about a wise and beautiful woman named Susanna. Right, so that's in the apocryphal text, um, which were included in our Bibles until uh, English, as I pointed out to you. And uh, you can get a companion apocrypha to go with your uh, Lutheran study Bible. There it is. All right, uh, and so of course this has the Song of Susanna in it. So I'd urge you to get that. Go with your Bible. Um, anyway, regarding Susanna, it is the unforgettable story of. Two lustful elders who attempted to seduce this virtuous lady by threats, their perjured testimony against her when she refused their lecherous advances, the death sentence imposed for the adultery they alleged against her in revenge, and the dramatic emergence of the prophet Daniel 
to vindicate the woman's innocence and confound her accusers. It's really a cool story. The 3rd century Alexandrian exegete Origen drew attention to the particular detail in, in the story by way of illustrating an ironical contrast between Susanna and her accusers. This all belongs to the psalm, just wait. The, these latter, the accusers, Origen observed, when they began to lust after the woman are described in this way, quote, Thus they perverted their own minds and turned away their eyes from looking up to heaven, and they rendered not just judgments. In striking contrast to them, it is written of the accused Susanna that she simply, quote, looked up with tears to heaven because her heart trusted in the Lord. That's from Origen's commentary on John uh, 20, volume 28, verse 5. Um, think, I think it's book 28, chapter 5. Can't remember. Anyway. So, to the psalm, unjust men, that is to say, do not look up to heaven, for heaven sees into their hearts and condemns them. Those who trust in God, however, always look up to heaven, for heaven alone is the final foundation of their hope. It is ever to heaven that the just man raises his eyes in trust. Right? See that in verse 1. Because of young Daniel's forensic intervention, Susanna's unjust, mendacious trial ended in her righteous vindication. Not so the unjust, mendacious trial of St. Stephen. Here, no Daniel rose to redeem the moment and restrain the impulses of the multitude in their fury. For, quote, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Acts 7, verse 57, 58. Stephen himself, nonetheless, raising his eyes exactly as did Susanna, quote, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Acts 7, verse 55. With the just man, it is ever thus, condemned and uh, contempt upon the earth. He lifts his vision and sets his sights on high, trusting in the God who reads hearts and recognizes those who belong to him. This trustful raising of the eyes to heaven is very much a component of the prayer of the book of Psalms. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, says Psalm 24. And in Psalm 140, we read, For to you, O Lord, Lord, are my eyes. Psalm 122, Hebrew 123, forms a sort of meditation on the raising of our eyes in prayer. You can see it right there. It is to, quote, you that dwell in heaven that we lift up our eyes. This line resounds with the opening of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. We heard that was a really in the background of the sermon for Thursday. Indeed, even the Hebrew sound of you that dwell in heaven, Hayoshibi Bashamayim, resembles the opening of the Lord's Prayer translated into Hebrew, Abainu Seb Bashamayim. The physical heavens above us are but a reflection and a veil of the real heaven. Our communication is with the real heaven, where Stephen beheld Jesus standing at, the right, at God's right hand. Whether or not, at any given moment, we actually raise our eyes to the visible vault above us, the inner eyes of the heart, nonetheless look to the Lord our God till he take compassion on us. Why do servants and handmaidens look to the hand of their masters and mistresses? Very simply, for direction, for the smallest gesture of command, for any faint indication of preference. That is to say, with a view to the ready obedience in their service. And for this reason we do Two, raise our eyes to God, that we may be prompt to doing of his will on earth, as it is done in heaven. So like Susanna and like Stephen, we live for God and in hope of his approval. We res- with respect to men on earth, it may always be the case that we are a reproach to the prosperous, a disgrace to the proud. This too, to this, we are indifferent. For as Excuse me, for us, it is sufficient to detect but the slightest sign of God's redemptive will. Right? Always keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We might put that verse in there too. Right? Um, and I, I think if we want to connect it to our gospel text tomorrow, um, there is that danger that we look to our material possessions, as Luther reminded us in the Magnificat. Um, looking to material possessions is some indication of God's favor. But he provides for both the just and the unjust alike, as we confess. Right. Um, so to look to God's favor, we look to the institutions that He's established. Right. We look to our baptism and the promises He made to us there. We look to the supper 
and the promise and gift that he gives to us there in his body and blood, forgiveness, life, and salvation. We look um, to the preaching of his word that um, calls us out of darkness and back into his marvelous light, right? Um, we don't look, <laughs> we look up. We don't look down. We certainly don't look at our, at our belly buttons, as Luther reminds us. Don't be navel gazers, right? Uh, that's like Narcissus, right, of old. Always looking to oneself um, to try to learn of God is, is never going to be uh, satisfying. Um, and maybe actually drive you into despair, anxiety, worry, etc. All right, I think that's sufficient there in preparation for tomorrow. Um, let's continue with our catechism for this week. What is the third commandment? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Fourth commandment, honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the third commandment, you teach us that your word makes our lives in the day of of worship holy. Your word creates repentance and faith in Christ in our hearts. Your word gives us true help, comfort, peace, and strength. Your word brings Jesus to us with all the blessings of his salvation. Thank you for the rest and peace your word gives. For Jesus' sake, forgive us for despising preaching in your word. Grant us to hold your word sacred and gladly hear and learn it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in the fourth commandment, you teach us that our parents are your gifts to us. Through them, you gave us life, and through them, you care for us and provide us with all that we need. Thank you for our father and mother. Forgive them when they sin and strengthen them with your grace to be faithful parents. Forgive us for every sin of disobedience, disrespect, and dishonor shown to our parents and all those in authority over us. By your grace, help us truly to honor our parents, especially when they fail and to always serve and obey, love, and cherish them according to your word and for Jesus' sake. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We pray, O Lord, keep your church with your perpetual mercy, and because of our frailty we cannot but fall. Keep us ever by your help from all things hurtful, and lead us to all things profitable to our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. On this Saturday, we pray for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray for all the households of our church, especially this week, with Tara, David, Christopher and Anne, John and Linda, Julie, Wendell and Amy. Pray for all those who are ill, receiving treatment, uh, or recovering. Tristan, Marcella, Kelsey, Ron, Amanda, Dan, John and Timothy, Janice, Sandy, Ken, Kathy, and Kay. Our homebound, Bev, David, Roy, Willis, and Mickey. The missions and mercy work of the church, especially LCMS World Relief and Human Care. We pray in intercession this week for the gift and increase of gentleness among us. Pray for those yet um, exiled in Afghanistan. Pray for those affected by Hurricane Ida. We pray with Bill and Willis, who both grieve the death of their wives. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. I think it's fitting for us uh, to pray a collect um, in favor, well, in remembrance, I should say, of uh, 9-11. Hold on one second. I have one here. Just pulling it up. All right, we pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ, for your protection and provision. As we remember the terror of this day 20 years ago, we also remember each day of safety and peace granted by your goodness and mercy. Bless those who work to keep the peace and to protect the innocent. Endue your church with your spirit to proclaim Christ and him crucified. Lead us all to repent of our sin and to trust in the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, as the only rescue from sin, death, and the power of devil. In Jesus' name, amen. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the communion, oh, excuse me, and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Hmm. I think the hymn uh, is especially appropriate on this uh, 20th anniversary of 9-11, so let's sing, let's sing the entire hymn today. As I said before, um, I do have a, a few things I wanted to say about 9 11. Um, and it's interesting the way that uh, 20 years later, I've seen some, I, what, I, what, what I would suggest is some misuse, misapplication of, of the events of that day and the events that followed. Um, namely, that, that we see everything as warfare, that we're always in conflict, um, that we see each other as our enemies, as enemies of one another, and that we're always fighting. Um, you notice the language of uh, the coronavirus is that we're battling and we're fighting against this virus. 
Well, except the virus has no uh, morality, it has no um, ethical standard, it has no religious ideology behind it, <laughs> um, and it actually doesn't play by our rules, right? We can't com- make it conform to the things we'd like it to do. Uh, but I, I, but I saw this morning just really an astounding uh, post. Um, I won't name who it is; just uh, there's no need to bring shame upon them. But just an astounding uh, post where nine eleven was used as a parallel um, to the to fighting against. Um, um, this virus, and uh, there's no moral equivalence to the two, right? The idea that we need to band together to get fight against a virus—I mean, it has some truth to it, of course. Um, you know that we support uh, the development of appropriate therapeutics and uh, and maybe vaccines that that work um, or that that are appropriately used, right? But it's not—it's a false unity, and it's actually a false moral equivalence to say that. Uh, uh, that we can defeat uh, the evil. I heard um, actually from President Bush's, you know, the junior, younger Bush, his speech at the memorial service on uh, September fourteenth, uh, two thousand one, at the National Cathedral, uh, where he said that we must fight to defeat all evil in this world. And I'm reminded then of what Luther said there in, in Can Soldiers To Be Saved, is that that's, that's a false and misleading dream, to quote to him, um, that we can um, defeat all evil in this world. As a matter of fact, this world is under the captivity of the devil, and we will struggle against all manner of evil every day. And the fact that uh, we're alive and that we're well, and that we're cared for, um, is actually a sign of God's grace and mercy. And we thank God for that. But that also means that we don't let down our guard and um, allow these, uh, I don't know what to call them, campaigns against evil, campaigns against the Taliban, campaigns against a virus, campaigns against, even in the church, against false doctrine or something, um, blind us um, to the way that we become the very thing that we're fighting against sometimes, right? So um, the virus has a hold over us, but then we use that to exercise a hold upon others. The um, um, you know, uh, there were these terrorists that attacked 9-11, or attacked the Twin Towers on 9-11, um, and other places too. Um, incidentally, terrorists that were trained by the CIA, by our own government, and funded and armed by our own government. Um, so that adds some complexity, of course, to the morality of the whole day and, and the response. But um, uh, but it, it can't be the same thing, that we end up then, in fighting them, become the same evil that we're fighting against. All right. Um, so I know I would, I would suggest one other thing is true too. Um, if there is anything uh, that is equivalent between the war on terror, as it's called, and now the war against the coronavirus, as it's called, if, it has, if there's one thing in common is that, um, yes, there are enemies, um, but the enemy is sometimes us. Um, because in both cases, um, if you just do a little bit of reading, a little bit of research, <laughs> you'll find out that there is truth and there are lies. And much of the response to both of these wars was not built on truth, but actually built on lies. And we followed after lies in kind of a triumphant, militaristic, you know, battle hymn of the Republic kind of way, not recognizing that we're fighting the wrong battle because we haven't actually evaluated what's true. So, um, hmm. So if there's any equivalent, that's it, that we should not live by the lies um, and that we should be patient, restrained, um, seek the truth, and then act responsibly. Um, in love and care and concern for one another and not in tyranny and oppression um, and become the very virus ourselves, <laughs> if you want to use that uh, picture. So it's, it's a meditation today. Because, uh, Well, one more thought. Um, the consequence of 9-11 is the response to the coronavirus, the kind of tyranny, things like lockdowns would not have been permissible um, until um, the response and the, the authorization um, for use of force given by the Congress, and then later by Obamacare, and then we have today. So the level of tyranny that we see in our country today is a direct result of our response to the attacks of those terrorists on 9-11, in part. So that's why I'm saying we need to be a little bit more cautious that our response doesn't lead us down a path that, um, as people, our response to um, even smaller conflicts, say in a local congregation or in your family, don't lead you to a place that's worse than where you began. And maybe uh, maybe it's time to show a little bit of uh, reflection 
and say, what have we lost in our, um, in our attempt for vengeance against those who brought great death and destruction upon our own citizens? You know, what were we willing to forfeit, even of our own humanity? Hmm. Some thoughts to consider today. All right. Without, without actually desecrating their memory, but actually in honor of the memory of those who died, um, to show proper respect for those deaths, right? And act responsibly and actually uphold the freedoms that maybe they were died in a way to defend, right? All right. Um, so Lord be with you all today. I know it's a, um, I think it's a difficult day. It is for me. Um, I think for most, I mean, more people died on that day. More of our fellow citizens died on that day um, than Pearl Harbor, right? Um, certainly not other large-scale things like the attack on Normandy, but but regardless, certainly the most well more than Antietam, I guess that would be another uh, occasion, right? On U.S. soil, I guess those are the ones we want to look at. Most citizens who died on U.S. soil um, by way of an enemy attack. Something to consider there as well and meditate upon. So hopefully that helps you for tomorrow. Um, we're going to have, uh, of course, hear about how the Lord sets aside our anxiety and worry by making great promises to us. Um, we'll also have the installation of our teachers tomorrow. And uh, specifically our newest teacher, Mariah Larson, will be installed as, as teacher here. Um, and then afterwards we'll have uh, the first day of Bible class in Sunday school. We're going to start um, a study that will be year-long um, into the liturgy and the not so much the liturgy itself, but actually how um, the liturgy that we um, confess here in our congregation um, is a reflection of the liturgical life of um, the patriarchs and the prophets and the and the psalmists, right? That we're actually part of a, a much larger tradition, and it's just really scripture front to back. So we're going to be doing that throughout the year. Um, what we'll study in adult Bible class is actually the same thing they'll be studying with the younger children in Sunday school. Um, actually, we'll all just be in Sunday school in a sense. That way, the parents, um, while their children are in Sunday school, the parents then can um, study the same readings with us um, and be prepared maybe to have conversations with their children then later in the day and to reinforce it, all right? So I think that'll be a blessing to everyone that way. And then, of course, after Bible class in Sunday school, uh, we have our annual church picnic, which will be um, at the, down in the school gym uh, with games and fun and really just a time for fellowship. Um, I think we're trying to remember how to have picnics again. <laughs> you know, having not had them for a while. So, um, so join us for that as well. All right. And of course, divine services at 930. So we'll see you then. Lord be with you all today.